today on Ag News Daily. And so we did have some pretty massive emergence problems, especially in soybeans and things like that. We saw some in corn too. Listeners, last day of July, Tanner and Jennifer here to bring you a Market Monday episode. Jennifer's on her way back to the great state of Iowa and everything seems to be well weather-wise, right? Absolutely. We are in Missouri right now and there's a couple sprinkles on our windshield, but otherwise weather has been great for us. Yeah, after all the hot weather we had last week, we should have a milder week, at least in the Midwest. There's a strong chance today that we could see some rain in eastern Nebraska and southwestern Iowa. The Midwest currently has no severe weather alerts, but the south central U.S. is now where the heat has pushed through. As far north as Kansas and south of Texas, over to Louisiana, the heat advisories are in place. Parts of Kansas could see their heat indexes as high as 109 degrees. Oh, wow. That is a little toasty, if I say so myself. Yes, it is. Something else that's hot and right off the press is Polaris. They're once again pushing the boundaries of utility side-by-sides with their groundbreaking Ranger XD 1500. They unveiled the first ever extreme duty utility side-by-side. The XD 1500 is the new standard for power, durability, and comfort. The ProStar 1500cc three-cylinder engine is boasting to have 110 horsepower, making it the most powerful side-by-side. The Beast of Machine also comes equipped with steel drive automatic transmission. According to the Polaris Off-Road President and Development Manager, This is a collaboration effort between farmers and ranchers and large acreage property owners. The goal is to create a vehicle that could tackle exceptionally large large tasks with ease, offering power, torque, hauling, towing capacity that they say they have successfully put into this package. So 110 horsepower, 105 pounds of foot, foot pounds of torque. There's a cargo capacity of 1,500 pounds, towing capacity of 3,500 pounds, and industry-leading ground clearance. I did catch wind on Twitter, Jennifer, that uh, this fully loaded sticker price could be higher than $50,000 as they look to put these together. These trim levels are available, though, in varying tiered levels. So if you don't want to go full out, you certainly can look at a much more reasonably priced item. I'm using air quotes when I said reasonable there, Jennifer. (laughs) Most definitely. And that may be something interesting for us to check out for a future Tech Tuesday. Absolutely. Well, my first story of the day is jumping in more on the broadband bill that we have talked on in the past, but from a different person's perspective. USDA's Farm Computer Usage and Ownership Report revealed that in 2022, roughly 18% of U.S. farms don't have access to the internet like we have discussed before. While efforts to link the broadband gaps have been put in motion, no piece of legislation addresses every corner of the U.S., according to AgWeb. Current rural development programs focus on connecting networks to rural households and businesses a last-mile approach, in air quotes. Senator Deb Fisher of Nebraska ruled out the Last Acre Act on the Senate floor this week, 
with the hopes of pushing connectivity to every U.S. farm in a last acre approach. Producers looking to adopt precision ag technologies need network connectivity that extends far past their residences. They need to be able to make real-time decisions that increase yields and employ resources more efficiently. Our last acre act will ensure USDA has the strategy and resources needed to support last acre connectivity, said Fisher. If passed, the last acre act would establish an initial bid application for internet access across farms and ranches, create a system for connectivity devices to be placed on farm sites, structures, and machinery, generate a competitive bidding process for service providers, and direct USDA to include census of ag questions about broadband. Kip Eidberg, Ag Equipment Manufacturer's Senior Vice President of Government and Industry Relations, echoed Fisher's comments, saying the act would ensure all aspects of rural America are connected from the hospital to the school and to the farmhouse to the field. More information on this last acre act can be found on the Ag Web website. Yeah, that's a good resource. Glad that you shared that with us. Practical Farmers of Iowa, another great resource, is launching a conservation cost share program. Their share program is up and running, giving farmers throughout the state the opportunity to apply for conservation measures meant to provide native habitats for wildlife or improve water quality and soil health. Through four practices, prairie strips, precision conservation, oxbow wetlands, and pollinator habitats, PFI hopes to meet the growing demand that farmers are expressing. The Habitat Viability Coordinator Grace said the goal of the project is for a peer-to-peer communication and learning response opportunity, as well as the responsibility for conservation practices. The technical resources would help with step-to-step guides on how to install this conservation practice. The prairie strips are said to have released sediment loss by 95%, especially for nutrients like phosphorus and nitrogen due to an Iowa State University trial. The program can work with the Conservation Reserve Program as well. Right now, Oxbow wetlands remove 42% of excess nutrients from the water, according to the Nature Conservatory. And enrollees in this program would receive financial support and technical assistance during the planning and construction process. The new cost share services have had positive reactions so far. PFI is hoping that this cost share will be a good first project to build upon for other states to utilize in the future. Supporters of the cost share include Iowa Department of Agriculture and Land Stewardship, the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation, Clean Water of Iowa, the Iowa Soybean Association, the NRCS, as well as Innovation Grant, Pheasants Forever, Fish and Wildlife Services, as well as more. So you can see there a big pool of funding being brought to Iowa's farmers, and hopefully the program will be successful. Absolutely. And staying on the programs and policy route, with the Farm Bill in mind, two Midwestern senators called for a hard cap of $250,000 in crop subsidies per farm, coupled with rules to limit the money to working farmers on Thursday. It would be in about about face in policy from recent years of easier access to USDA supports and emergency programs that paid up to 750,000 to corporate entities. 
that this bill brings honesty to the farm payment system and prioritizes farming families over mega farms, says Iowa Senator Chuck Grassley, who unsuccessfully tried to reform payment limits in previous farm bills. Ohio Senator Sherrod Brown, who joined Grassley in the new effort, said that too often farm program payments have gone to producers who do not need to support or to people who aren't even involved in farming. The Grassley-Brown bill would set a maximum commodity payment of $125,000 per person and $250,000 per farm per year, similar to the current limit of $125,000 per farmer with spouses automatically eligible for subsidies. The bill would require recipients to perform at least 1,000 hours of labor and management annually, equal to working full-time for 25 weeks. It would be a hard cap because it would eliminate loopholes and lax definitions now available. Congress has tried since 1987 to restrict access to federal farm subsidies, but there are many ways to evade the rules, which say supports are available to people who are actively engaged in agriculture, meaning they provide land, capital, or equipment to an operation and provide labor or management, according to successful farming. For years, there was little or no definition of management. The Government Accountability Office, a congressional agency, reported in 2018 that a farming operation received $651,000 in subsidies in 2012, with 16 of its 22 members claiming they provided active management. The Grassley-Brown bill would would also remove a provision that doubles the payment limit for peanut farming and would end an exemption from payment limits for farms organized as general partnerships. More information on this bill can also be found on the Successful Farming website if any listeners are wanting to look further into it. Hey, very good. We also saw that all regions had extremely light cattle movement last week. Packers maybe have been stalling, refusing to swallow Swallow higher prices as margins were negative for the third consecutive week. We also saw feed yards having very little cattle to show, maybe stating that their marketing has been up to date. So we saw only a few head of cattle traded in the north at 294 to 295 dressed, while the south saw nearly a dollar lower at 179 per hundred weight. Next week, the cattle market action could be volatile as we didn't see much move last week. So it'll be interesting to keep an update on where things are sitting there. We did see on the board, August ended up 10 cents yesterday or last week. They represented in a weekly decline of, of uh, 187. But when we saw feeder prices, those prices rose by 95 cents. Feeder cattle traded mixed three to $4 lower. Calves sold from two to $2 higher as far as those markets went. Wholesale beef prices saw minimal change last week. Choice box beef closed Friday down just $1.46 at 3.02. Select box beef uh, closed at 2.77 and a half, up 81 cents from the week before. So it'll be interesting to see who gets to claim the poverty factor, whether we see cash cattle prices retreat or if we see packers margins increase. It'll be interesting to see what the next report states as uh, we're looking at um, gaining access to the contracted cattle report 
uh, as far as that goes. So it'd be interesting to continue to keep an eye on that. We've got updates coming from Russia. The Biden administration and officials are expected to attend Ukraine for peace talks. The uh, Saudi Arabian officials will be leading those discussions. Russia launched a deadly missile attack on the central Ukrainian city and hometown of President Zelensky. Rescuers are working to dig survivors from the rubble as far as that goes. Former Prime Minister uh, told, or former Russian Prime Minister told the Kremlin that they may be forced to use nuclear weapons if Ukraine's counteroffensive succeeds. Zelensky states that the war is gradually being pushed back into Russian territory. Ukraine's military ramped up efforts and are breaking through Russian defense lines. But then Russian President Putin is blaming Ukraine that its counteroffensive is the reason that there's not been ceasefire discussions. So quite interesting events happening there over the weekend. But that's the last of my news for today. And I have just one more article left on my list. Meat consumption in China has increased significantly since the 1970s and could climb further in the next decade, giving the country one of the highest per capita consumption rates in Asia, said a USDA report. USDA economists said per capita meat consumption in China is at about 53.9 kilograms, similar to Japan, but half the U.S. average, and could increase by 40% by the year 2031. China is the world's largest pork producer, second in chicken, and third in beef, said the Economic Research Service report. Meat provides 19% of daily calories compared to 4% in the 1960s. Pork is the dominant meat at 40 kilograms per person annually, or nearly three quarters of consumption. Meat production dropped a bit in 2019-2020 when an epidemic of African swine fever hit China's hogs but recovered to a record 89 million tons in 2021. The Chinese Agriculture Ministry has projected modest growth for meat production, reaching 93 million tons in 2025. Consumer demand for meat in the near term is clouded by uncertainties. China's population has fallen slightly, as India is now the world's most populous country by a small margin, and household income is growing at a slower rate. Still, Meat consumption is growing despite rising prices, and statistical models confirm that consumption is relatively inelastic to price changes, said the report. Based on past relationships between meat consumption, income, and prices, per capita meat consumption is projected to rise during the t- between 2022 and 2031 by about 21 to 23 kilograms, depending on the method used to estimate the report. Imports accounted for about 9% of the Chinese meat supply in 2021, compared to only 1% in the year 2000. More data can be found on China's meat consumption and the growth potential also on the Successful Farming website. So there is lots of information for listeners to look further into today if they're interested. Absolutely. Let's get into markets here before our conversation with Angie Setzler. Unfortunately, across the grains, we do not look great. December corn down 17 and a quarter here at the close to 513 even. November soybeans down 50 cents today, closing at 1332 and a quarter. The wheat contract, December down 37 cents even, closing at 
691. But as we look over into the livestock market, lean hogs up in the green, the October contract at $86 even up just shy of a penny today. Or I'm sorry, just shy of a dollar today. The feeder cattle up a quarter, closing the September contract 249 and a quarter. The live cattle down just a hair as the October contract closes at 179 and a half. So now it's time to get in and figure out why these markets reacted the way they did today with our guest, Angie Setzer. Well, listeners, we want to welcome Angie Setzer here to the podcast, founder and partner at Consus. So welcome back. It's been a little while, Angie. It has been. It's been oddly busy, it feels like, for the last, I don't know how many months, but I don't, that's, that's the old farmer thing, right? Like next week, yeah. it'll slow down. So that's, right. that's, that's the adage I live by too. So, so good to be back. That is exactly right. And what a wonderful day to be on the podcast to talk markets when things kind of fell off a cliff today. <laughs> Yeah, you can't see me violently shaking my head no when you say that, but yeah, not a not a not the greatest day, but uh, I guess there's no lack of stuff to talk about. Maybe let's start weather. How much of weather is impacting where grains move today? Oh, I feel like a lot of people will say it's it's a lot uh, being driven by weather. You know what I mean? Like I think you could could kind of cut a line of analysts or, or group analysts together and say, how much of you think this is weather driven? And, you know, pr probably 80% of them would raise their hand. And I think weather plays a role, but the reality is, is that forecast has been, you know, the, the, the August forecast, we, we got the first dose of um, above or below normal temperatures or normal temperatures uh, and above normal precipitation. I mean, that was in the August forecast back in, uh, on July 20th. And so it's not like this is a new sort of conversation. Maybe the fact that it it does appear as though, um, you know, it, it is going to be realized is sort of a special event or part of the sell-off. But I think, you know, weather is, is, allows for, for funds to come in or allows for some traders to come in, but I don't think it's the end all and be all of what drove market action today. Yeah, Angie, and looking at crops in your neck of the woods for your growers, how are they looking and what are you recommending right now? Yeah, ours, I mean, in the areas that the beans got decent emergence. And so we did, we were the driest. We were, you know, we on that fun May through the end of June map, we were number 131 out of 131 seasons of, of how dry it was. So we are number one out of it, however you want to. We were the driest we'd ever been. Um, and so we did have some pretty massive emergence problems, especially in soybeans and things like that. We saw some in corn too. I've never in my life seen it where we had corn fields um, basically that were partially emerged, 80% emerged um, that then when we finally started to get rains the end of June, suddenly saw, you know, a, a whole, it's almost like you saw replant. And so there are some areas that are are less than great, um, but then there's some other areas. I mean, I'm looking at a bean field across the road for me that is probably one of the prettiest bean fields I've ever seen, um, you know, and, and we've got a cornfield, the cornfields around. I mean, it's, it's, I would say the majority of my customers at this point in time feel confident that they still can reach APH, if not exceed it, if we have a decent finish to the crop, um, August and, you know, September, and of course, October, um, you know, we've got to have a, a long season, but recommendation wise right now, we didn't do anything today. We're not doing anything today. I mean, we traded, 
wheat when we needed to. Um, you know, wheat harvest has been taking place mostly the, the, at the start of this month. And so we had a lot of movement wrapped up last week, which was beautiful. We got to take advantage of the, the market rally, had some orders in at 775 on the Chicago board um, that got hit. And, and so that was nice. We did some corn at, at 560, uh, you know, 545 to 560 when we had the opportunity again. Um, you know, not overly aggressive and had traded some beans when they were at 14. So at this point now, we're just kind of sitting tight and seeing what's happening and what's going to happen, you know, let the market play out. We pulled a lot of risk premium out of this market when there's still a lot of risk present. So we'll see what happens next. That's a good way of, of putting it. There's still a lot of marketing here left, but it, it seems to be at least up here in a majority of the Corn Belt that we're going to make a crop. So how does demand look into the future here? <laughs> it's awful. That's the problem for corn. I mean, that's that's the, the biggest problem that we run into. And, and one of the things that I've been talking about for much of the year is that, you know, ethanol is a bright spot, um, you know, feed demand. Um, is questionable, I guess. We've got the smallest beef herd in, what, 52 years? So that's, you know, not great, um, you know, when it comes to feeding corn. So that's obviously a sign that we could see some continuation of, uh, you know, some reduction in feed outlook. We'll get a, a look at, at that at the end of the marketing year, you know, with the September quarterly stocks and and some of the the, the other numbers that come in. Um, export sales are, are horrible though. You know, like our domestic market structure is decent in corn export sales are, are just pretty terrible. I mean, oil crop wise, the USDA has cut so much off, um, and we're still lagging. I mean, it looks like we could, uh, we probably will, um, you know, come close to the, the USDA numbers at least, but when it comes to new crop, I mean, they're anticipating us, um, to bounce back significantly from this year's export figures. And I just don't see anything um, in the world market that points to that happening. Um, and so, you know, Seth will say at the, from the USDA that, you know, it's a, a their forecast of a significant increase in demand is because they anticipate prices to be much lower. Um, and so obviously the longer we stay above five, um, the harder that is to accomplish. But from a global um, standpoint, you know, you've got Argentina with their corn dollar, they're going to, you know, basically introduce five to six, maybe seven million metric tons of corn into the global market, right as Brazil's getting ready to push their second crop harvest out. Um, you know, they've got some areas down that way that are just getting rolling in harvest and they're already talking about their static um, bin capacity full, being full. And so there's going to be a lot of things that happen in the world market that you know, the U.S. corn is going to have to stay or the U.S. corn is going to remain elevated because the demand structure is good domestically and the U.S. farmer can hold on to bushels relatively tightly. And so it'll be interesting to see how it all plays out. Yeah, and staying on this kind of global scale, scale looking at Russia and Ukraine, how much more of an impact does this story have to play into the markets and how much of it is already factored into the prices that we're seeing now? I think that, uh, you know, from an overall standpoint, it's definitely something that's keeping us on our toes. They sucked a lot of the risk premium out, like I said before, that had been dominating this market. I mean, we'd rallied significantly from the downside back up um, and, and traded to new highs last week on, you know, concerns over what would happen, worries that we would see Ukraine retaliate um, against Russia on their attacks on the, the Ukrainian ports. And so we did see wheat kind of try to recover there on Friday. Um, with reports of some explosions in, in some parts of Russia. Um, we are seeing, you know, more reports of Ukraine sending drones to Moscow and 
you know, obviously that situation is escalating. I think, you know, the world leaders and the world powers are showing that they're going to do everything they can to, to keep the flow of grain um, facilitated, whether that's throwing money, throwing, um, you know, additional help when it comes to, to shipping or storage or things of that nature. I think, you you know, you've seen that the world leaders are going to keep grain moving as best they can out of the area. So as long as nothing happens to disrupt what's going on when it comes to Russian exports, uh, you know, for the most part, I feel like we've taken too much risk premium out of the market for the situation being entirely unresolved. Um, but from an overall you know, cash pipeline situation, overall cash market situation in the wheat market from around the world, there's no one really worried that they don't have access to supplies if they need them. Yeah, it's a good perspective. It seems like each day I grab headlines from Russia and Ukraine as those are ever changing, it feels like, but uh, it'll be interesting to see how everything shakes out. Let's shift here for the, towards the end of our conversation to the livestock side of things. You mentioned one of the lar- one of the smallest cattle herds in over 50 years, but we also seem to have some of the lowest demand too as well for mm-hmm. beef. Yeah, yeah, and that looks to, to really continue, honestly, from an economic standpoint. Whether we have a soft landing or not, we're going to see some belt tightening that's going to hit, and people are going to think twice you know, about what they are putting on their plates. I mean, I'm, I'm seeing it even more and more just anecdotally, you know, in, in, on Facebook or um, in some of the community groups where folks are are becoming far more vocal about the struggles that they're having with kind of just even keeping their heads above water um, from an economic standpoint. And so, yeah, I mean, one of the first things that you're going to get cut is that $10 stake, um, you know, and, and look in a, a different direction. And so, uh, yeah, I think it'll be positive potentially for your ground beef demand and things like that. But overall standpoint, um, you know, when looking at the economy, it's just even if we, like I said, can maintain that that sort of soft landing, uh, the belt tightening that's happening, you know, across a lot of households uh, is going to kind of long term impact that demand. So as we get ready to send you away, what's something else? Is there any last piece of observations you've made heading into this week that our listeners should be watching? No, I just, you know, it's volatile. There's a lot of uh, money moving in and out, um, you know, and and I think the soybean market is probably going to have some support here. I think today um, might be a bit of a one-off, just some position squaring or something of that nature, but like I said, this thing's going to, to continue to, to be really volatile from a farmer's standpoint. You know, make sure you're utilizing target orders and, and kind of having a plan when it comes to what you'd like to do. Days like this are the best time to think about um, where you wish you would have made sales or where you wish you could put some orders in place and, and actively do something um, from there. Because this market's going to bounce back and forth and it's going to do so really violently. And so being an active participant um, you know, is the best way to catch those big moves. And if our listeners want to follow along with what you are up to, what's the best way for them to do that? You can find me on, at Twitter at Goddess of Grain or at X now, the website formerly known as Twitter. <laughs> um, you can uh, uh, check out our website at consusry.com. Uh, awesome. Thanks again for hanging out with us today, Angie. Thanks for having me.
Well, there we go. It's always good to get some of the reasons behind the answers, right, Jennifer? Absolutely. We always love looking forward to that information. It is. And it's good for us to share that with our listeners. Don't wait. Tomorrow we will be right back with another show. Get you the latest headlines and more great conversations on our Tech Tuesday episode. But for today, what do you say? Should we let the listeners go? Let's let them go. 